Today, uh, we're coming to the conclusion of chapter one. I said this is the fourth message from this chapter that I've preached. And we've seen the theme of this book crop up early that will color the entirety of this letter. In Paul's first, uh, first chapter of this epistle, he, he comes into this problem in Galatia with this false sect of the Judaizers, these false brothers, and so go on to call them later in chapter 2. These false brothers come in and are seeking to destroy the faith by preaching another gospel and adding to the gospel works of human merit. So due to theirs of the circumcision party, the pseudo-Christian sect that is disturbing the region's churches, Paul is set in defense on a few fronts, if I may put it that way. Firstly, Paul is concerned with the spiritual well-being of the churches in Galatia. This is evident from the opening verses of this letter, in which he has stated that he is perturbed by the desertion of the gospel of these brothers in the faith that he has helped to establish in sound doctrine. Now the background of this, that Paul had already been to this region and he had helped to establish these churches. And no sooner did he leave, here come these false brothers, these false apostles who set themselves up as apostles, come in and they are attempting to capture the people of Galatia and put them back under the uh, ordinance of circumcision and uh, undermining the gospel of Christ in doing that. And Paul is um, rebuking them for doing so. Secondly, Paul is concerned with the spiritual well-being. Oh, sorry. Paul contends for the gospel in this chapter. This is really going to be the theme through the rest of the book. Paul is contending for the gospel. Paul seeks to establish the fact with these brethren that the gospel is exclusive. There's only one message that ought to be preached among the churches, and that is the gospel. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. He gives a stern warning here in chapter 1 that any who turn from this gospel or contradict this gospel are under the judgment of a righteous and holy God. He warns them in um, verse um, 8. He said, But if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. So he contends for this gospel and he warns the people of Galatia that these false apostles that have come in among them are under the curse of God for deviating from the message of the gospel. And finally, that brings me to the point that Paul is defending his apostleship. Starting in verse 11 and running through the chapter to verse 19, we see in view Paul's divine appointment to the office of apostle. This is evident in verse 15 and 16 where it says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me that I might preach him. 
He is defending his having received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ and that the revelation of this gospel did not come from man but directly from the divine source, from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Our catechism question today asks of us, what is the chief end of man? The answer, of course, and it's in your bulletin if you'd like to say it with me again, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Man was created with a purpose. And depending on who you ask, you'll receive a different answer. When the question is asked, what is, what is that purpose? The materialist, the atheist, who doesn't believe that he was created, would first of all say that he wasn't created. At least not in the biblical sense of the term. But when pressed, you might squeeze out of him perhaps. I don't know. The secular humanist who thinks that um, humans and others uh, themselves are the highest authority in this world might say, to be the best I can be and to do good for myself and others. The Buddhist or the mystic might reply, what is purpose? I don't know to be the best I can be, or perhaps just to be. Now, uh, but the Christian is the one who knows that the purpose of man is to glorify God. Now I can see this might be an odd way to introduce a text that is primarily dealing with Paul's apostleship and his defense of the gospel. But I pray that by the end of this, I can make this make sense. So we turn now to our chapter, back to this uh, text that I'm preaching out of. And last time we left off at uh, verse 16, so we'll uh, pick up at verse 17. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. Paul here is detailing the course of his travels after his conversion. Paul states that at this time he did not go up to visit the apostles in Jerusalem, as stated earlier in verse 16. He did not immediately consult with anyone, but went away into Arabia and returned to Damascus. This is the line of Paul's defense of his divine calling to apostleship. Now, we do know that he was confirmed in the gospel and he was baptized by Ananias three days after this encounter that he had with Jesus. But he didn't receive, he didn't consult with them about what the gospel was. And there's a reason that he brings this up. See the, the charge, and we'll talk about this at length later, but the charge against Paul was that, uh, he, that he hadn't had this conversion experience and that he wasn't it was either that or that he wasn't preaching the same gospel as the apostles in Jerusalem. And we'll see later why that's erroneous, why that's in error. It should be noted in making this point that the apostle Paul intends no disparagement towards his brother apostles in Jerusalem. So 
he, he is not, um, in this, he is not saying that I'm preaching a different gospel than what they're preaching. He's not claiming that I and I alone have this revelation. He is defending his apostleship. He is defending his appointment to be an apostle. He is not saying that those at Jerusalem are not apostles. Yeah, he called them apostles. And that's, that's one thing that Calvin noted in his commentary on this. He said he called them apostles. He's not, he's not denying their apostleship, but rather defending his. Yes, right, right. So Paul is not trying to disparage the apostles at Jerusalem, but because of the nature of the charges, uh, the nature of the charges brought against him, and what was at stake, namely the gospel, Paul needed to defend his divine appointment to this office of apostle. For this reason, many falsely charge that Paul contrasts between the authority of God and the authority of the apostles. I've heard this said so many times that, uh, you know, I know most of the arguments they make. Uh, people say, well, nobody really received the true gospel until Paul received it from Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. So we can either, we can discredit everything that is in the Gospels and the Old Testament and everything the the message for the church really doesn't pick up until the books of book of Acts chapter nine, chapter nine or the and there's different versions of it mid Acts late Acts Acts two there's different uh, teachings on this and this is commonly known today as dispensationalism or hyper dispensationalism people believe that the authority of Paul is superior to that of John, Peter, James, and all these other apostles. And that's just simply not true. For one reason or another, uh, people who hold to this view uh, try to bifurcate the gospel. That means to make two, two gospels. And they unwholesomely place the Pauline epistles in opposition to the rest of the scriptures. So to give an example of how somebody might do this is to say, um, if you quote to them something that was written in John, and they'll say, well, that can't be true because Paul says this, and Paul, received, Paul was the one that really received the gospel. Or you'll quote to them James 2 that faith without works is dead. And then they'll quote to you that, oh, well, uh, Paul said uh, we're not under the law. Um, we're not saved by works. So what James said can't be true. Um, you know, we really, uh, faith without works isn't dead because, well, Paul said that we were saved by faith apart from works. Again, this argument misses the point entirely. And to place this division between what the Jerusalem apostles wrote and what Paul wrote is improper and if taken to the logical conclusion is heretical. Right. It is a teaching from hell itself. Right, right. Well, what you're doing is you're 
Yeah. Well, and that, that's a good point to bring out as well, is that th this, the other apostles, Paul calls them apostles. One can only be an apostle, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, and I'll explain why this is true later, but one can only be a, an apostle if they receive a divine appointment to apostleship. So if Paul is calling these other brothers at Jerusalem apostles, he cannot be saying that what they have isn't the gospel, or that he's received a higher revelation. So to, you'll see how this can be uh, taking this statement to be saying that Paul is the only apostle cannot be the plain meaning of this text if for no other reason the fact that he refers to those at Jerusalem as apostles. He clearly states it. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. So he affirms that they have received their authority from Christ. But he is defending that I'm not a heretic. I have received my authority from the same Christ that these apostles received their authority. Moving on to verse 18. Verse 18, then after three years, he said, this time frame, this three years, is the time frame that is referenced in Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 22, or 20, it could go on to 23, immediately after Saul's conversion, where he began to preach Jesus in the synagogues. Acts chapter 9, he says this, He is the Son of God, and all who heard him, he was saying, He is the Son of God, and all who heard him, that is Paul, were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who were called who called upon this name? And have he not come here for the purpose of having them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. These people that heard Paul preaching the gospel in Damascus were astonished because if you'll remember back to Acts chapter 9, the whole purpose that Paul was going up to Damascus was to capture and arrest Christians for preaching the gospel, to have them beheaded, martyred, persecuted. And now here is this Paul who... Acts chapter 9 said was still, at the time he headed up to Damascus, was still breathing threats and murder against those who were in Damascus, is now preaching the gospel. Verse 23, uh, Acts 9.23 goes on to say that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. We see that the first plot of the Jews uh, in this chapter to kill the Apostle Paul, and he escaped this um, by his pupils, the students, the people who followed him. The text called them his disciples. They lowered him down through the wall in the basket, and he escaped from Damascus where these Jews sought to persecute him for preaching the gospel. Paul references this in his second letter 
to the Corinthians chapter 11, 30 through 32. Paul says, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Then he goes on to recount this humiliating event. The persecutor himself being persecuted for the cause of Christ, for which he had formerly persecuted others. This is a man who had devoted his time to stopping the message of the gospel, defending the traditions of his father, fathers. He believed these Christians who were preaching the message of Christ to be heretics. He considered them worthy of death. The offense of preaching the gospel was one that was worthy of death. And he was capturing and taking Christians to be imprisoned and beheaded. And here he is in Damascus now preaching this gospel. Friends, this is the power of the gospel. Paul doesn't recount these events to prove himself heroic. If you haven't come to understand this yet from our studies with Pastor Kevin in Genesis, we've been reading the story of Abraham from Genesis 15 and 16 and how God made his covenant with Abraham. And uh, if you haven't noticed, everybody wants to paint. Uh, we have this individualistic, modernized way of thinking. And we read the Bible. We read these stories to our kids. And we talk about Bible heroes. People who are heroic, people who are, you know, you know, astute defenders of the faith, people who followed God, people who were righteous, and some think righteous in and of themselves, and that had actually went about to establish their own righteous righteousness. And this is not what we see in Scripture. If you've been paying any attention to these studies, you'll know that there is only one hero in all of the story of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the story. Abraham was a sinner. Moses was a sinner. Noah was a sinner. The Apostle Paul was a sinner. He was a murderer, a blasphemer, and a slanderer. So Paul doesn't recount these events to prove himself heroic. He was not proud. I mentioned in the previous sermon that he wasn't a man with a chip on his shoulder. He wasn't proud of the things that he had done. His boast was not in himself. The Apostle Paul, like you and I, if we be in Christ, was brought low. He was humbled by the message of the gospel. The gospel takes away any possibility of our boasting in ourselves. The gospel says that the distance between God and man was so great that there was nothing that we could do to bridge that gap. So in order for that gap to be bridged and for us to be reconciled to, to God, God had sent his only son to come to this earth and die for sinners, living the perfect life that they couldn't live, dying the sacrificial substitutionary death that we could not die. To face the penalty that we were under due to our sin. So knowing this gospel, 
We have no possibility of boasting. We have no cause for boasting. The Puritan John uh, Flavel said, They that know God will be humble, and they that know themselves cannot be proud. The, ap the Apostle Paul was a man who knew God, and he was humble. He was humbled by the gospel. He knew himself. He knew his sin. He knew his lack of righteousness, where he once boasted in his righteousness. A, a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, you know, blameless according to the law, according to the Pharisaical interpretation of the law, if I might add. He wasn't blameless according to the law because nobody is blameless according to the law save Christ. Yeah, well, that's the kind of attitude that we all have before our, before our conversion. The hardest thing to do is to convince a sinner that they're a sinner. It's to convince a sinner that they need a savior. That is the fundamental assertion of the gospel is that you and you and you and all of you and me and the apostle Paul are fallen in the need of reconciliation to God. And that we can't do this. If there was a ladder ascending to heaven, we couldn't even make it to the first rung without falling. We cannot Stand before God in our own merit. Verse 18, continuing. I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas. Like the three years, uh, unlike the three years of ministry in Damascus, this first visit is not recorded in the book of Acts. This was Paul's first trip. And I want to note that this word visit, because some people get weird and they try to say that, see, this is when Paul went up to receive the gospel from Peter. He went up there to learn what the gospel was. And some say that he went up there to confirm the gospel. And that's actually on the second visit that we'll talk about in chapter 2, when we discuss chapter 2. But on this first visit, there was no... Um, he wasn't going up there to receive or be taught the gospel. Um, this word for visit is translated from the Greek, and the Greek word for this is hysterio, which is, um, is, if you've got a strong concordance and you want to look up, it is word G2477, hysterio. This means to become personally acquainted with or to gain knowledge of by visiting. So this was uh, just to go up and make acquaintance with him, to get to know him, to get to know what he, to get to know about one who walked with Christ, the one who knew Christ in his earthly ministry. So uh, this, could also, this word being used in this case could also carry the connotation of examination or inquiry. And thus it is suggested that Paul may have interviewed Peter about the life and ministry of Christ at this time. But he didn't go up to receive the gospel. He already had this gospel. 
So it can't be inferred that he went to receive received the gospel. He had already been preaching this same gospel for three years in Damascus. So this isn't when he was commissioned to be an apostle. He wasn't commissioned to be an apostle by laying on of hands by the apostles who received it from Christ. He met the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus from himself. We talked about that account last time where uh, you know he was blinded by the glory of God. And Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? It may be for, said from this uh, encounter that the newly appointed apostle went not to learn from Peter the gospel, which may have been a charge laid to Paul by the false apostles that were in Galatia. So to discredit his former claim of receiving the gospel of a direct revelation of Christ, therefore to avoid these charges, Paul makes it a point to say that on this visit, he remained a little over two weeks, 15 days with the apostles, and he saw none but Peter and James. So it's not like he was going up to have a council with all the apostles saying, hey, teach me this thing so I can start preaching he already knew the gospel. He received it directly from Jesus Christ, as he said. And so the reason that he labors in all this and defending himself, he is not so much jealous for his authority or wanting to have a voice. He is jealous for the gospel and the glory of God because he knows that that is what is at stake in his apostleship. If they can discredit his apostleship, they can discredit his message. If they discredit his message, then the, then the uh, Judaizers are right. Right, right. And, you know, they do need to be subjected to circumcision. The gospel, the gospel is good, but it's not enough. Become a Jew, and you can be a follower of Christ. Become circumcised, and you can become a follower of Christ. And that's what they were saying. And Paul is saying, no, don't believe that gospel. If anybody preaches that to you, it's not a gospel at all. And those people for preaching it are cut off. They're anathema. They're under the judgment of God. He spends a great deal of this chapter, this first chapter and into the second chapter, defending his apostolic authority. Some who want to discredit the apostle in that day, and I suppose such is true in this day, with the rise of liberalism in the church and quote-unquote biblical scholarship would have it said that Paul was lying about the details of his conversion and that he either preached an entirely different gospel from Peter, whom he later corrected for having preached in favor of the circumcision party. So if he was preaching another gospel that Peter didn't know about, how can he correct Peter and say, oh no, this, this is what you're supposed to be preaching. He wasn't teaching, it should be noted that Paul didn't teach, or Peter didn't teach Paul the gospel, and Paul didn't teach Peter the gospel. That's not what was going on in this account. They were both apostles, they both received the gospel directly from Christ, and 
So any attempt to say any different is merely a lie. So those that would make these sorts of statements, and I, I've, I've heard them all. I've heard that uh, we don't need to listen to anything that Paul said because uh, he wasn't an apostle and they can prove that he wasn't an apostle. And thus they discredit two-thirds of the New Testament on one side. Or they say that um, we should only listen to Paul because Paul was the only one that received the gospel. And so we can throw away two-thirds of the Bible on the other side. We don't need any of it. We just need what Paul taught. So these who make these sort of statements don't realize that they can't have their, ki can't have their cake and eat it too. And end up walking all over one another's opinions about the text of Scripture to, to disprove two-thirds of the Bible or two-thirds of the New Testament. Either way, it's an erroneous teaching. Yes, all scripture is inspired. Even this, uh, even this little bit of narrative here is inspired. It's useful for teaching, and that's why I'm teaching on it. Expository preaching causes us to take these texts that most people would count insignificant and expound them because they are in there for our instruction. So, couple the fact with, of, the, of the accusations against Paul, both ancient and modern, with the fact that the word apostle has become somewhat of a throwaway word, yeah. as an NAR buzzword, that is falsely, this title that is falsely appropriated by the, the uh, NAR in the hyper-charismatic camp, has lost much of, the, much of the powerful connotation that the title once carried. Often, apostle, which is apostolos in the Greek, G652 in your Strong's Concordance, is conflated with the word disciple, mathetes, G3101, which is improper. A disciple merely means to be a follower. These... Um, these that followed Christ, or these that followed, we were talking about Paul escaping from Damascus. It said that his disciples lowered him down in a basket. That word in the Greek is mathetes. This is not, they were not apostles. Paul had no authority in himself to appoint apostles. But he had disciples, he had followers. So confusing these two terms often leads to it not having as much of a powerful context as it used to have. But in the ancient world, apostle was one who had divine authority. It carried the weight of one who had a divine appointment to an authoritative office. And what they said was the word of God. They were inspired when they wrote these books. Everything in this book was inspired because Paul had received his authority from Christ. And so when we downplay the meaning of the word apostle, it's a little hard to understand why he spends so much time defending his authority here. Because 
if you have two apostles, both divinely appointed, making contradictory statements about the same message, you no longer have the singular gospel that Paul contended for here in Galatia. To this, it was to this end that Paul defended his apostleship. His defense of his appointment was not an act of self-preservation. He was prepared to die and to lose his life. And eventually he was beheaded for the testimony of Christ. Paul's defense of his apostleship to the churches in Galatia was in service to the gospel and the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. We as Protestants note that it's October, and uh, this is the, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation with his nailing of his 95 theses of the Catholic Church door at Wittenberg, Germany. And since then, Protestants have been a group of people who hold these truths to be true. Salvation comes to man by divine grace alone. Through the means of faith alone, in the person and work of Christ alone, and according to the Holy Scriptures alone. And the overarching principle, the undergirding principle of all of this, is that salvation by the free grace of God and the gift of faith in the second person of the Trinity the Son of God, Jesus Christ, glorifies God. And that glory belongs to Him alone and takes away all possibility of boasting on the part of man. This gospel that Paul preached among the churches in Galatia glorified God. The apex of the gospel is the glory of God. To say it another way, the gospel is the glory of God, and the glory of God is the gospel. God was most glorified in sending his son to die for the sins of uh, undeserving humanity to be reconciled to him by faith alone. This was the glory of God. Moreover, this was the power of God. 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18-23 says that the gospel is folly to Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul, Paul defended this gospel so ardently because he knew that if the churches in Galatia lost this gospel, they were being cut off from the possibility of salvation. If they believed another gospel that wasn't Christ, they had lost the possibility of salvation. They had lost hope. If it is up to us to do anything to commend ourselves before God, we are without hope. The gospel is this, that we are saved solely by God alone for His glory alone. So... Um, I want to read here um, verses 21 through uh, the end. It says, Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown to the person, in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Lord, that can break down hardness such as existed in the Apostle Paul. And he knew it to be true. He knew that it had not been for the triune God sovereignly overcoming his obstinance and hard-heartedness in the person of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He would still be a murderer, a blasphemer, and a a persecutor of God's chosen people. Had it not been for this gospel, Paul would have died in his sins. If it was not for this gospel, you and I would die in your sins. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to take a dead man and raise him to new life. So we can identify here with the saints of God at Judea that were rejoicing over the conversion, over the salvation of Paul and over his preaching of the gospel. We rejoice when a sinner repents. We rejoice when someone who once persecuted the faith preaches and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in this postmodern age. We are fighting so many attacks on the Bible, on the gospel, on the word of God. um, If you ever get the chance to watch the uh, documentary, um, Christ Alone, um, or American Gospel, Christ Alone, or Christ, is it Christ Crucified, the second one, Christ Crucified, it talks about the attacks on the atonement. It talks about these uh, attacks on the gospel. Um, I heard a guy once say in a church that I wouldn't recommend going to, that nobody wants to hear about a bloody old cross. People want to hear about victory. Well, that bloody old cross is victory. It is the, the word of the cross is the power of God, 1 Corinthians says. So in all of these attacks that are going on, we rejoice when somebody repents from this worldly, worldly way of thinking and joins us in the trenches fighting and contending for the gospel as Paul did here among the brethren in Galatia. We rejoice when we see broken men and women gone astray from the fall, reconciled to their creator to fulfill their purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Enjoying his peace forever. Romans 5.1 says that therefore having been justified by faith, we presently, we have peace with God. This is the glory of the gospel that Jesus Christ has came to give us peace with God. This peace that was promised throughout all of the Old Testament that a king would come to bring us peace and hope and life has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we presently have peace with God. We don't have a need to fear condemnation or judgment. If we are in Christ, we are free from condemnation and judgment of the law. This was the gospel that was at stake in Galatia. And to this end, 
Paul defended the gospel and his authority that God may be glorified in him. And it says here that the churches glorified Paul. No, they glorified God. So when we get, I always found it funny, kind of just odd that when people, uh, you know, they come to Christ and they get baptized, people will say, oh, well, congratulations. Why, why are you congratulating me? Praise God. Amen. Praise God. All glory to God. This is the gospel. The gospel is the glory of God. So I want to exhort you today, friends. Earnestly contend for this gospel. Earnestly contend for the exclusivity of Christ. For the glory of God. And the salvation that he brings to us by free grace. May we contend for the gospel. And for the lost and dying sinner, friends, we ought to be praying earnestly that those who do not believe, those who persecute the faith, those who have a heart like Saul did before he was converted, would be changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ, by the word of God. This is why we preach the gospel to people, that people might be converted. We believe that in the power of God. And we believe that God has ordained that we pray for those who don't know him. And that we love them by sharing with them the gospel. And by guarding this gospel. We have been entrusted to guard the good deposit of the gospel. Because it is the only hope for the salvation of men. May we each and all contend earnestly as the apostle did for the glory of God and the gospel. So if you would please stand. And I want to exhort you with this passage of Scripture. For the love of Christ controls us. Be it because we have concluded this. That one has died and that he died for all. That those who, might li those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for who him. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ as according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from, is from God, who through Christ reconciled him reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us his message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. God has entrusted us with this ministry of reconciliation to go out and to implore men, be reconciled to God. And we do not do this in our own authority, but in the authority of the Word of God and of Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this gospel, this gospel of your glorious grace, 
this gospel of salvation that comes to us through your Son. Father, we thank you for his person and work. We thank you that you have given to us the details of his life and his perfect obedience on our, half, on our behalf, that we might glorify you in the words of the gospel. Father, today I pray that these here who have heard these words, I pray that as you said, your sheep hear your voice and know you. I pray that you would let me be forgotten and your word be remembered and your exhortation that you give to us to implore men to repent and believe the gospel will be remembered and carried out in each of our lives. Father God, I pray that you bless each of these as they go from this place today, Lord, to live for you. Father, I pray that you would give them strength and power, Father God, and uh, a sense of urgency for this gospel and for the glory of God. Father, we pray that you would bless the time of fellowship that we have coming. Father, that you would bless this food as we partake it. And that you would bless all those who have heard this message today. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In Jesus' name, amen.